Well, if you've been paying attention to uh, the news at all, the Air Force has been in the news a lot recently, right? They've been shooting down things. Things that we don't really know what they are or why they're there, but they're just shooting them down, and it's daily now. In fact, four times since February 4th, something has been shot down out of the sky over our country, which is a bit unnerving when you consider the fact that we really haven't had, outside of 9-11 in Pearl Harbor, war come to our coasts, our shores. But the Air Force is, is busy. They're shooting things down. And, and before I came up here, I saw an, an article from, not, or from the Babylon Bee, which said, uh, Super Bowl ruined because Air Force kept shooting footballs down out of the sky. <laughs> I thought that was clever. That one got me. Uh, those guys are, are, are clever in their writing. But I, the Air Force fascinates me. And, and fighter jets fascinate me. And I love seeing them and, and watching them and just thinking about, well, what would it be like to be inside one of those things? One of the movies that's immediately reached the top of my list of favorite movies of all time, even though it's relatively new, is the latest Top Gun. And if you haven't seen that movie, then you're doing it wrong. Um, you need to see it. Uh, we've, we saw it twice in theater. We've seen it like seven times at home. It's amazing. It's so good. And I don't even really like Tom Cruise. Um, it's not about that. It's about the movie. And part of what makes the movie so good is the plot of the movie. And if you've seen the movie, the, the, the plot, it, it does what any good plot does, and that is it thickens along the way, meaning the characters are developed and the opposition is developed and there's tension that arises during the movie and there's a clear antagonist and there's a problem that needs to be solved and, and everything's moving towards this head, towards this one point. And I remember watching this movie, and, and there's some movies that you're just watching, and, and you're sitting in the theater going, why did I spend $50 to come and watch this movie here? Like, this is just not, it's not doing it for me. It's not sucking me in to, to what's happening here. Um, like, my wife and I, I, remember, we went to go watch the Downton Abbey movie in theaters. Man, that's the type of thing that you do when you get married. You love your wives well, and you go watch Downton Abbey in the theater. And that one, like, I was never tense a, a one second during that entire movie. I did not care if the butler was going to get the shoes shined in time to make sure that Downton Abbey maintained its prestige and status in the lives of, of the English, like, notoriety. Like, that didn't move the needle. But, man, Top Gun, like, the, the tension just ratcheted up as I'm watching this movie. And I'm in the theater going, what is going to happen? And, and I won't give it away, because if you haven't seen it, just go see it. Or, or rent it or stream it or whatever. But they're, they're, they're on their, their mission part of the movie and it's just, you just sit there on the edge of your seat going, what is going to happen? It's a little bit of what's going on in our section in Mark right now. The tension is ratcheting up. Remember, as the church father Papias referred to Mark, he's Peter's interpreter. And so Peter is telling Mark all of these things. And Mark is taking all of Peter's memories of the life of Jesus and not doctoring them, not changing them, but arranging them specifically in order to communicate and to tell a story, to tell a narrative, to tell the biography, the life of Jesus and why that matters for us. And we're coming to the place in our passage tonight where, again, the, the tension begins to just escalate. So far, Jesus has, been, has, has burst on the scene and he's been doing things and wowing people in small pockets and up in Galilee and kind of out in the countryside. Well, now he's coming to Jerusalem. He's been on his way. That's what we looked at last week. Now he's, he's getting there. He's going to enter into the city. And the tension and the, the conflict between him and the antagonist, in this case the, the Jewish leaders, is just going to escalate in our passage tonight. But all the while, as he's going through and as the tension is going up, here, he's still teaching. He's still teaching his followers. And he's still preparing his followers for what's coming. And he's still helping them to know what true commitment to him really looks like. And as we get to eavesdrop in this, it's helping us know what true commitment to Jesus really looks like. And so if I can challenge us tonight, as I've challenged us previously in this study, let's come to this as though this is the first time. And let's put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples because they didn't know that the cross was coming. They didn't know that the empty tomb was coming. They were following the guy that they were thinking, this is the Messiah. And they were watching all of this unfold before their eyes. And it must have been pretty unnerving to sit there 
and to, to see all this taking place going, what's going to happen next? But all the while, Jesus was in control, preparing them for what was coming. If you're not already there, Mark chapter 11 is where we're going to begin. Mark chapter 11. So Mark in total has 16 chapters, right? The first 10 chapters have been about Jesus' first two and a half to, to two and three quarters to two, and no, more than that, almost the full three, first three years of Jesus' ministry, save one week. Chapter 11 through chapter 16 in Mark, so almost a third, uh, just over a third of the gospel covers one week, seven days of Jesus' life. That should tell us something, right? It should tell us that something significant is going on in the section that we're coming to. Tonight we're going to get through chapter 13. Next week we'll get through chapter 16. But with chapter 11, what opens up is the triumphal entry. And you may be familiar with that passage. You, you may know even that this is a, a hearkening back to an Old Testament prophecy, which is found in, in Zechariah. In Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, Zechariah prophesied and said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the, from Ephraim the chariot and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so when we open up in Mark chapter 11 and Jesus instructs his disciples, hey, go, and you're going to find a, a donkey. And I want you to untie the donkey and I want you to bring it to me. Jesus is in full control, and he knows exactly what he's doing here. Jesus is orchestrating the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 right here in this triumphal entry. And you know the, the scene where everybody's got the palm branches, and they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of, of the Lord, right? And it comes from Psalm 110. Nope, Psalm 118. Scratch that. Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. And as they're, they're crying this out, that, that psalm, Psalm 118, was, was part of the Hallel Psalms, which were the praise psalms. And these psalms would have been sung right around the time of Passover and at other times, but specifically around the time of Passover, this section of the Hallel Psalms, because they were reflecting on remembering God's deliverance of the people of Egypt, or the people of Israel, from captivity and slavery in Egypt. And so as, as the Passover approaches, the people would have been, this would have been fresh on their minds. And then Jesus is, is on the donkey and he's coming into Jerusalem. And the people would have seen this and gone back to Zechariah chapter 9. Because again, the, the messianic expectation would have been palpable for them. They're looking for the Messiah. They want the Messiah. They, they want to find the one that's going to deliver them. They just don't understand how he's going to deliver them. But here comes Jesus riding on the donkey. And just think about the scene, right? No longer is Jesus telling people, hey, don't tell anyone who I am. We've seen that a few times in the Gospel of Mark. He's healed people. He's healed the blind man. He's cast out demons. And he's told the people, hey, you know what? For right now, just keep this under wraps. Or when Jesus was trans transfigured that we looked at last time that we were together, and he told Peter, James, and John, hey, you know what? Don't tell anybody about this. Jesus is no longer concealing things. Because why? Because his time is coming. His hour, as John puts it in his gospel, is coming. It's right around the corner. And so Jesus is publicly making it known that he is declaring himself the Messiah. As he sits on this donkey and he comes into the city, he is ready for all that awaits. He's ready for the conflict that's coming. But also notice he's not entering the city on a war steed, but he's entering the, the city humbly in riding on, on a donkey. So even that is communicating something about his messianic identity. And it says in verse 11, when he entered Jerusalem to these cries of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and the, the, the shouts and the expectation that this is the Messiah, it says in verse 11, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, that is up to the temple mount. And it says, when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he left again and went out to Bethany with the twelve. There's this kind of cyclical pattern in the, the Passion Week here, the last week of Jesus' life, where he'll enter the city during the day and then leave the city at night. And so here he is, he's come into the city, but it was already late in the day, but he wanted to do something that's going to factor into this next section. He goes up to the Temple Mount and he looks around. He just observes everything going on there. 
And having seen it, having taken inventory of things going on, he turns around with his disciples and he leaves. We pick up in verse 12 on the next day. They're walking and they come together from Bethany and it says Jesus was hungry. Even that small comment there is a reminder of his humanity, right? Fully God, fully man. It's like in John 4 when he sits down by the well, when he meets the woman at the well because he was tired after walking so far. Here we see the hunger that Jesus experienced. He was hungry and seeing in the distance a a fig tree in a leaf, which is behind me on the screen there, that's what it would have looked like, a, a fig tree in a leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. That's an important line there. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Yeah, the tree huggers don't like this section of, of Mark's gospel here. They, they just really don't. Because they think Jesus is picking on this tree. In fact, there are people that argue that this part here of Mark, where he encounters the fig tree, and then we'll, we'll see here a little bit later on where he curses the fig tree, and then they go and they find the fig tree withered in, in just a, a couple sections from here. People think that that was Mark's, that, that was somebody else adding that to the text, that that never actually happened. And here's why they think that, because they, they look at this and they say, this was a, a negative miracle, okay? That Jesus cursing this tree was destroying, it was destructive in nature. It wasn't rehabilitating. It wasn't restorative in nature. So people say Jesus wouldn't have done that. This must have been something that was added on later in. But number one, like this is a tree. Let's cry a river about it, build our bridge and get over it. Okay. This is not, he's not looking at a person going and boom, you're paralyzed. Sorry about you. Tough luck in life. Should have borne fruit. No, I mean, this is a tree and he's using tree because he's the tree because he's the Lord of creation right? He's using the tree as an object lesson for his disciples. Jesus isn't hangry here going, oh man, there's no figs. Well, you know what? You're done. I'm God and you're done. No more fruit for you. In fact, Jesus would have known that there wouldn't have been figs there, wouldn't he? Because he goes up to the tree and it says when figs were not supposed to be on the tree. This is what figs look like when they're in season. I I like figs in, in Newton's. I don't like figs anywhere else. But apparently it's a thing in Israel to go up and just start eating figs off a tree. This is what he was thinking might be there, although he knew it wasn't there. This was all an object lesson for the disciples. Somebody made the point. They said, wouldn't it have been a better miracle for Jesus to have caused fruit to, to happen on this tree or forced fruit in the tree? And the answer is no, because that wasn't his point. That wasn't what he was trying to communicate to them because Jesus knew what he was going to do, not just here, but right after this as well. Because if you keep going in, in Mark here, notice the, the final line there, and his disciples heard it, right? But then look at verse 15, and then they came to Jerusalem. So this is on the way into the temple. So this happens on the way in, and then they come into Jerusalem, and they go to the temple. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Isaiah 56, 7. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, again, they go out of the city. So what gives with the fig tree? Jesus goes to a fig tree in leaf, meaning it had signs of life. It looked alive, but it bore no fruit. It really was was useless in its current state. Jesus goes then from there into the temple, onto the temple mount, which should have had not just signs of life, but the fruit of life. This was the, the, the hub for Israelite worship. And more than that, this is the season of Passover. So every male 15 and over in Jerusalem was required to be there at the Temple Mount. And so it would have been packed and there would have been people everywhere. And, and Jesus is there. And remember the night before he had gone there to kind of see what was going on on the temple. And he comes back and he goes and he begins to, to overturn the money tables and everything else. All of this was taking place in the court of Gentiles, by the way. That was the closest that the Gentiles, the nations, could get to the house of God to worship. That's why he quotes there from Isaiah 56, 7, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. 
but you've turned it into a den of robbers because the Gentiles can't come and worship because there's cows here and there's money changing going on and you've corrupted the whole place. And so Jesus is throwing a fit because he's there and he's seeing what should be a source of life for the people. And yeah, maybe it has signs of life, but there's nothing there. It's bankrupt. It's empty. It's empty religiosity. And it's powerless to do anything good for the people of Israel. So you've got the, the tree that looks alive but bears no fruit. By the way, one of the metaphors for Israel in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 8.13, Hosea 9.10, Micah 7.1, Nahum 3.12. You know what Israel is compared to in every one of those passages? A fig tree. So he comes to the fig tree expecting or, or using it as an object lesson to say, look, it looks alive but there's no fruit. And then he goes to the temple and he says, look, it looks alive, but there's no fruit. And then they, they move on from there. And it says, when the evening came, they went out of the city. So he leaves again. But then the next day, he's coming back to the city. And on the way back to the city, they pass by the same fig tree. And look at verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. It goes from full life to now it's dead. Because of the power of the Lord of creation that cursed it. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed, it's withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says, that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you, you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven may forgive you and your trespasses. There's, there's a dual element of teaching going on here. Jesus is teaching something about the, the bankrupt nature of Israel, but he's also calling his disciples to have faith and to trust in God and have big faith to ask big things in prayer and to make sure that they're not having anything that's going to hinder their prayer life. He brings up the forgiveness piece there to say, look, if, if you're harboring something against a brother, that's going to harm your prayer life. So you need to be sure that you're forgiving in this process. What is Jesus communicating in this first section? I've, I've alluded to it, but this idea that there can be lo- appearance of life without any life actually there, right? And as the, the tension escalates and as he's with his disciples there and, and the conflict is, is, is growing with the Pharisees, I mean, this is, they're looking to destroy him now. But notice Jesus is in control of it the whole time. He's choosing the time He's making these decisions. He's doing these things. And all the while, he's teaching his disciples. And here, one of the things that he wants them to learn is he wants them to be on guard against a fruitless and sterile faith. Our first point tonight is this. Beware of a sterile and fruitless faith. Beware of a sterile and fruitless faith. See, the the problem with the Pharisees was an identity problem. They were putting all of their faith in their identity as a Pharisee, as a a high priest, as a Sadducee, as an elder of the people. And so their confidence in who they were had everything to do with their external reality, not their internal being. If you've been tracking with our DBR, we were in Matthew 23 not long ago. And in Matthew 23, Jesus confronts the Pharisees and says, woe to you, which is is a, a curse upon the Pharisees. Basically, Jesus is saying, damned are you. And he calls them whitewashed tombs. He says, yeah, externally you look great, like a fig tree that looks like it should be alive. But he says, but internally you're full of dead man's bones and decay. You clean the outside of the dish so it looks great, but inside it's full of rottenness. See, the Pharisees were, were, were thinking they were fine because they had the external signs of life but there was no reality inwardly. There was no internal life that was bearing real, true fruit. All of their fruit was just simply rotten facsimiles of the real thing. In our front yard, we have a a kumquat tree. That's a fun word, kumquat. And every spring, when when time for the, the fruit comes to show up, my kids strip that thing bare so fast. Like they... At first, we didn't know what it was, so they brought us these things. They were like, can we eat this? Sure, but make the oldest one eat it first, and then we'll see what happens to him. 
once we figured out they were edible, and, and the oldest one is still fine, in case you're wondering, we said, yeah, go, go for it. Eat it. Eat it. Go for it. And, and anytime there's fruit on it, they're, they're just devouring the thing. So that there's times where it should be in, in fruit, but there's no fruit on it because my kids have just stripped the thing bare, right? But then there's other times when there is fruit that it's, you can see the fruit and you go, that's what that is. That's a kumquat tree. We also have another tree in our backyard that's a loquat tree, which I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't know a loquat existed until we moved into this house. And then about 10 months passed. I just was like, oh, look at that big green tree in our backyard. It's my extent of botany as I'm like, oh, it's a tree. I can identify that's a tree and not a bush. I know enough to be able to point that out. I didn't know it was a fruit tree. And then all of a sudden it like flowered and I'm like, oh, cool. That's pretty and stuff. And then there were these like pods on it. Okay, that's interesting. And then the pods turned into the fruit. And I, I, my kids were like, can I eat this? I'm like, no, I think that will kill you. I don't think you should eat those. I don't know what it is, but I don't think that's right. Until my father-in-law showed up and he was like, oh, you got loquats. I was like, do we spray for those? What are, what are loquats? He's like, no, the tree, that, the fruit on the tree, that they're loquats. I was like, oh, okay. It was the fruit that identified the tree, right? If we are truly following Jesus, y'all, there should be evidence of it in our lives that identifies us as followers of Jesus. There should be fruit in our lives. If there's no fruit in your life and you're saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, you're like the fig tree that he cursed. You're like the religious leaders of the Jews on the Temple Mount thinking they're good because they identify as a Christian. Jesus said in Matthew 5.16 on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? What is it? What is that next phrase? So that may, they may see your what? Good works. So that they may see your fruit. To what end? That they may glorify God. Okay, Jesus is talking to his followers here. Saying, you know what it looks like to follow me? What it looks like to follow me is it, it looks like doing good works. So that when people see your good works, when they see your fruit, there's a, an, an impetus in their lives. There's a cause in their lives that they would glorify God as a result. And so, y'all, to be a follower of Jesus is to bear fruit in your life. 1 Peter 2.9, likewise, Peter says that we have been redeemed for a purpose. What purpose? That we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Y'all, that proclamation goes deeper than just the words that come out of your mouth. That proclamation involves the way that you live your life. You are saying, you are telling people things about Jesus by how you live your life. If you attach his name to your identity, that you are a follower of Jesus, your choices, your things that you are doing, the words that you speak, your actions, tell somebody about your Savior. Beware of a sterile and fruitless life. I, I wonder if Jesus were to show up here tonight and look for fruit from your life, would he find it? Or would he find an outward appearance of life without any real genuine fruit? Does your life proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light? And look, y'all, I, I know this is dangerous because I, I run the risk of commissioning a bunch of fruit police in this room that are just going to go out and, and just start to smack everybody upside the head with their fruit inspection list. It's not my goal, Okay. It's not what I'm after. Here's the deal. We, we preach grace, but we also preach truth at the same time. And the truth is that, that we need to be doing good works as Christians. And I'm not going to apologize for that. I'm not going to hide behind, a, 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 you know, that, well, that's legalistic to preach works, so I don't want to preach works. Look, I'm not preaching works to save you, but I'm preaching that if you're saved, you will work. You will do works, okay? How do you know that, Pastor PJ? John 15. John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine. And he says of his followers, you are the branches. And then he says, look, any branch that does not bear fruit is going to be cut off and thrown away. Severed from Christ. Why? 
because they were never really in Christ. Because to be in Christ is to bear fruit. To be in Christ is to have life through him that causes your life to look different than it did before. To be in Christ is to be transformed. That's that song that we just sang. I want to be more like Jesus. That implies that we're not like him as much as we want to be like him. Which if we want to be more like him means that we need to look different than we look now. Which means that our lives need to align more with his life. Which means we need to follow him. And what did he do? He did what honored the father every single way he looked, turned, thought, spoke, acted. And so we need to beware of a sterile and fruitless faith. That's what Jesus found on the temple. That's what Jesus found with the sacrificial system in the Israelite leaders, and that's why he turned over the tables. Remember early in Jesus' ministry, he said, you don't take new wine and put it in old wineskins, lest the old wineskins burst. But instead you take new wine, you put it in new wineskins. And I talked about Jesus was here to do something new. Okay, he's not veiling that anymore behind a parable about wine and wineskins. He's turning over tables on the Temple Mount and calling people to account. If you look down at your Bibles, you'll see uh, Mark eleven twenty five, and then you'll see the next verse is Mark eleven twenty seven. if you have an ESV. And you might think that there's a problem there, which if you do, congrats, you passed like kindergarten level math, right? Where did verse 26 go? Well, verse 26, if you look down in your footnotes, it's, it'll say something like this. Some manuscripts add verse 26. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Okay? Why do only some manuscripts put that in there and not others? Because it's, it's not in the best manuscripts that we have, the oldest manuscripts that we have. And so that's one of the, the blessings that we have in having over 5,800 Greek manuscripts that we can look at and compare and contrast and, and see what is, is there. Okay, so this is a reason to trust your Bibles, not a reason to doubt your Bibles. Why was it put in there? Well, it was put in there because Jesus did say something similar to that in other gospels. And so at some point, one of the scribes was like, oh, I'm sure he meant to put that in here. And I'm sure he got knocked upside the head for that when he got to the Bema seat. But for now, just know this is not something to panic and pull the ripcord and go, oh no, my Bible lost verse 26. It must've fallen out. It wasn't supposed to be there. Okay. Okay. Verse 27. If you've got more questions about that, come up to me afterwards. We can talk about textual criticism, but I don't want to bore everybody else in the process. Verse 27, now they're out to destroy him. Remember the, the chief priest and the, the, the religious leaders? So now they begin to come at him and they're trying to trap him so that they can accuse him and bring him and drag him in and, and say, now we're gonna kill you. And so they start to send their dispatches to Jesus. And the first one that comes is, uh, is the chief priests and the scribes and the, basically the whole Sanhedrin. And they come up to Jesus. And the Sanhedrin was like the Supreme Court of Israel, like the highest uh, authorities are now here. And they're saying to, to Jesus there in verse 21, 28, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus begins what's going to be a masterful uh, class in how to disarm your opponents and undermine their whole reason for opposing you. And it starts here. Verse 29, he asked them a question. He says, you know what? You're asking me about authority. Let me ask you a different question. He says, uh, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from man? Answer me that and I'll answer your question. Well, they get together and they're like, oh man, Whew. if we say it was from heaven, we remember what John said about Jesus, that John said, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember that, we remember that John said that, that he was the voice in the wilderness from Isaiah, crying out, prepare the way for the Lord. We remember that John was the messianic forerunner, according to John. So if we say that it was from John, the next question is, well, then why don't you believe me? And we've got nothing to answer. But if we say John's message was not from God, then the people who love John are going to be really upset with us. And so they go back to Jesus and they say, we, we don't have an answer. And Jesus then says, okay, well, then I'm not going to answer your question either. Well, they regroup and they're like, okay, now it's your turn. You go talk to Jesus this time. But before they do that, Jesus takes the offensive. Look at verse, chapter 12, verse 1. It says, he began to speak to them in parables. And you remember what parables were supposed to do, don't you? Parables were really supposed to hide the truth from those 
that were receiving the passive judgment of God at the time. I talked about that, I think, a while back. That, that God is teaching in parables so that those with ears to hear would hear, but to keep it from those who didn't have ears to hear. Well, here he's doing something opposite. God's using the parable to reveal something to the antagonists here. Kind of like Nathan and David, you remember that? David's sin with Bathsheba when he was up on the, the, the rooftop and he's like, hey, there's a pretty girl that's not wearing any clothes. I, I'm going to just hang out up here for a while led to like a baby being born. If you guys don't know how that works, watch Top Gun and then go talk to your parents about that second. That's like your second homework assignment. Top Gun first, then talk to mom and dad about the whole baby thing. Anyways, Nathan comes to David because David then kills Bathsheba's husband through conspiracy. And Nathan comes to him and tells this whole story, a parable that is meant to get David to the point of going, that guy deserves to die. And, and, and Nathan goes, you're the man, right? Jesus is trying to drive home this point with his opponents in a similar way here in this parable. He says, a man planted a vineyard. In this case, the man in the parable is supposed to be God, the owner of the vineyard. And the vineyard is Israel. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants. The tenants are the religious leaders of the Jews. And went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant, read prophets when you see the word servants here. He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they, the the tenants, the the religious leaders, took him, the prophet, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. This is recounting, this is like a mini survey of, of the history of Israel. So Jesus is saying that the prophets came with a message from God, and you guys beat the prophets, rejected the prophets. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Verse 5, and he sent another, and they killed him. They did that to the Old Testament prophets. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Verse 6, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But these tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours and they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What, what will the owner, owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is, and it is, it is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 12, they were seeking to arrest him. They're enraged at this point because they get it. They get that Jesus is saying, I'm the son, you're the tenants, you've been rejected. So they're enraged. They want to arrest him, but they fear the people. And so they left him and went away. And then they say, okay, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to try to trap him in his words. And so they first send this group, the the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Herodians were uh, Jews who supported the Herodian dynasty, King Herod. So they were, kind of, they were kind of turncoats. They were kind of traitors. And the Pharisees and the Herodians would not have liked each other because the, the, the Herodians said, we like King Herod. The Pharisees said, we serve no king other than the descendant of David. And so this group would not have gotten together, except they're not stupid here, y'all. They get together and they say, look, we can catch him. Either he's going to make Herod and Rome mad, or he's going to make us mad. We'll get him either way. And so they come to Jesus and they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus says, hey, any of you guys have a denarius on hand? By the way, this is what a denarius at that time would have looked like. And Jesus said, whose inscription is on the denarius? He said, well, Caesar's face is on the denarius. Jesus says, okay, give to Caesar those things. Give to Caesar those things. And give to God what is God's. And it's another masterful answer because the Herodians are going to go away fine because he said, yes, pay the taxes. This this little silver coin, this little idol that you have in your hand with an image of a a man that would have said the the divine son of Caesar Augustus, the Pharisees that you guys probably have jingling around in your your phylacteries and your robes there. Yeah, give give that to Caesar. But give to God the things that are God's. Implication, everything. Implication, God's the Lord over Caesar as well. And so Jesus would have answered in a way that would have kept the Herodians in check and the Pharisees in check. And so they leave and they say, okay, well, we failed. And so the next group up is the Sadducees. 
And the Sadducees come to, to Jesus with a question about the resurrection because, and this is something to know about their, their background, the Sadducees did not believe in a bodily resurrection. They denied that reality. And so they come to Jesus with this outrageous story. And this story has to do with a, a, a man who was married to a woman. He dies, and then his brother comes and, and marries her, and then she die, he dies, and then the other brother comes, and then that guy dies, and then somehow this other brother was like, yeah, this will end well for me if I do this as well. And then he, he dies, and they go, look, when, when they're resurrected, who's she going to be married to? Because there are these, all these, these guys. And you may be going, what in the world is going on? And it goes back to this passage in Deuteronomy. This passage in Deuteronomy, which says this, if, a, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Okay, so this was part of the, the, the Old Testament law that the brother was supposed to continue the name of his dead brother by going into the dead brother's wife. And that may give you the skeeves, and that's fine, whatever, I get that. But right now, the Sadducees are, are, are presenting this ridiculous scenario, which was probably like a running joke that they had amongst themselves to make fun of the Pharisees. But now they're doing it to try to get Jesus in a trap because they're trying to get Jesus to deny the resurrection, which would have enraged the Pharisees, and there would have been this discrediting of Jesus. It would have gone bad for Jesus at this point. But the problem is Jesus, again, answers masterfully. He says, look, you guys don't understand. The afterlife is, is not going to be like this life. Is not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, verse 24. Verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That does not mean that you're going to get wings someday and be an angel. Okay, that, that just means that, that he's saying it's, it's, it's different. It's a different class. It's a different existence for us. And he goes on, he says, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? By the way, the Sadducees, they stopped at the Torah. Those were the only books they held to be authoritative. So Jesus goes to the Torah to defeat their position that there is no resurrection from the dead because Jesus quotes and says, have you not read in the book of Moses the passage about the bush? How God spoke to him saying, I am presently, not I was, but I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then I love this. You are quite wrong. Okay. By the way, sidebar, if you're worried about marriage in heaven and you're like, man, I can't believe there's not going to be marriage in heaven. Look, I'll tell you this. If you don't get married before you go to heaven, you're not going to be, there's, you got no shot, okay? There's no shot, right? If you do get married and you're sitting there going, okay, but am I not going to have any sort of relationship with my spouse in heaven? That's not what the text says. All this is saying is the institution of marriage as we know it does not exist in heaven. It doesn't mean that there's not a, a special relationship between you and your spouse, the person that God joined together on earth and you'll spend that many years together. So if that's your panic and that's your hold up on that, that's not the point. Jesus is just trying to, to make the Sadducees understand that they're not right and also, again, deflecting the opposition. Finally, not finally, but next, the greatest commandment section. Uh, one of the scribes, so an expert in the law, comes up to Jesus and says, uh, Jesus, there's 613 laws out there. What's the greatest one? And this was not a, a random question because this would often be debated among the, the scribal families. What's, what's the greatest commandment? Which one is it? And it's definitely not, you shall not boil a, mother, a goat in its mother's milk. That one was not on the table for a consideration. But Jesus, some of you guys are like, that's a commitment. Yes, it is. And that's why you should read the Bible. Because you read things like that and you're like, what? what? Jesus responds, though, by quoting from this passage, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, which was the Shema passage. This was a very significant text for any of the Israelites. This would have been memorized by parents and children. And it's this passage that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is dripping with covenant language here. Because it's, it's the, the divine name of, of God, Yahweh. He is one God. The covenant God, Yahweh, is one. And in response to what he has done for you in, in making you a people for his own possession, you should love him with everything. 
So Jesus says the greatest commandment is love God with everything. Love God with everything. But then he also quotes from Leviticus 19.18 about loving your neighbor as yourself. He says, oh, but the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because a fully devoted love for God will overflow into a love for other people. Which, by the way, can I just sidebar on that too? If you don't love other people, and you say, I love God, then there's a short circuit somewhere in one of those equations. And the short circuit isn't horizontally as much as it is vertically. John talks about that, right? How can we love God if we don't love our brothers? Love for God that overflows and a love for other people. And I love the end of this because I think this guy's closest of all the people that come up to Jesus because it says here, the scribe said to him, you're, you're right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And notice verse 34 that, that only Mark includes here in this interaction. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus commends this man. He says, you're, you're so close, man. You're right there on the doorstep. I don't know if this guy eventually got it. Maybe we'll meet this guy in heaven. But Jesus is at least commending him as you're close. There's something different about you. And so I don't know if this one was as much antagonistic as it was this guy was genuinely trying to get some of his doubts and questions answered. Verses 35 through 37, Jesus returns to the public onslaught in offensive against his opponents revealing here through a quotation from Psalm 110 that the Jewish leaders had a, a subpar view of Jesus, a subpar view of the Messiah. Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus says, because the view of this for a long, the view of this for a long time was that this was an enthronement Psalm, that this was about the king, the descendant of the king, the offspring of David. But Jesus says that doesn't make any sense that David would just be talking about one of his royal descendants. Because if this is just one of his great, 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 great grandpunks that's going to be out there sitting on his throne, David's not going to call him Lord. Jesus says, no, the fact that he called him Lord shows us that, that this is David recognizing that one of his descendants is going to be the messianic king, but he's going to be more than just a, an ordinary human being. So Jesus is calling the, the Jews out saying, your view of the Messiah is deficient. It lacks. And even your Old Testament passages point to the reality. Verses 38 through 40, he confronts the, the scribal teachings and warns against the hypocrisy there amongst the, the scribal teachings. And then there's this, this, uh, this illustration where he points out the, the widow's might, the offering that she gives. Here you have somebody that's not concerned with public appearance, not concerned with what other people are thinking. She just knows what God has required of her, and she's come in faithful obedience to give that, even though that's everything that she's got. And Jesus says, that, that's what we're after. That's what we're after. Contrast that with the arrogance and the pride of his opponents. So we're thinking about Jesus teaching all the way and, and, and through all of this. He said, beware a sterile and fruitful faith as we just looked at in point number one. But the second thing he wanted his disciples to be aware of as he's encountering all of this opposition and everything else is this. We need to beware of prideful rejection. We need to beware of prideful rejection. Look, y'all, if, if you have doubts, if you have questions, if you have challenges, don't be afraid to ask them. Don't be afraid to voice them. Only do it with a teachable, humble heart, like the, the, the final one that comes up to ask Jesus about what's the greatest commandment. Ask the question and then do so wanting to, to learn, to hear. Some of you may have your doubts about Jesus. You may wonder, in the first place, did he really even live? Or maybe you're wondering, okay, maybe he lived, but was he really crucified? Did he really rise from the dead? Is he really the only way to salvation? Is he really going to come back? And maybe your doubt, maybe your question, maybe your challenge is not up on that screen. 
Maybe it's something totally different. I just want to let you know it's okay to have questions and doubts and concerns. It's okay to ask the questions. It's okay to, to, to say, I don't know if I get this. It's okay to say, I wrestle with doubts and I struggle with the concept that Jesus is coming back. Can you help me here? I want to believe this. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm just honestly, transparently, I'm struggling with this right now. Yo, I don't want you to be so in, in the, the, the vein of thinking that you have to have all your boxes checked and ducks in a row that you can never question. It's okay to question as long as we do so, not like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious opponents of Jesus, but we do so with a humble and teachable heart. In fact, it's better for us to do that than to just stuff it down and say it'll go away eventually. Listen, maybe you're here with doubts and challenges and questions tonight and, and you're not a Christian. Listen, I, I, I invite all of your doubts and questions and challenges. Again, I would ask that you do so teachably, humbly. And, and here's the thing, I'm not saying that I'm gonna win you over or that somebody else is gonna win you over by answering those. Because the problem is not a matter of information, the problem is a matter of will. But look, I, I will promise you, whatever your doubts, questions, objections, challenges are, there are answers that we can provide that will help at least remove some obstacles between you and faith and trust in Jesus. This book's been here for, in this form, 2,700 years, give or take. Nope. Seven, what year is it? 2023. 1,700 years, give or take. Maybe it'll be here for 2,700 years in this form, give or take. I don't know. 1,700 years, give or take. 325 AD and, and beyond. There have been plenty of people that have wanted to challenge, question, undermine, attack, destroy, and they haven't been able to. So I, I'm not worried that you're sitting here tonight in this room with the question that's going to undermine 2,000 years of God's word. And I would hope that you wouldn't come with such a pompous spirit to think that you have that question or that challenge or that concern. But that you'd come saying, okay, if this is God's word, then there are answers and I want to know. Let me again talk to the Christians in the room. Don't be afraid to humbly ask your small group leader, your friends, your pastors. The Bible can handle our questions. In fact, a healthy faith is an inquisitive faith. A healthy faith is a, let me rephrase that, humbly inquisitive faith. In our family, we have something that we call family Bible time each morning. And that draws a lot of questions from my kids as we read through the, the Bible stories. And we've been reading through Mark, and we got to the section where we're behind where we're at, because we're going at a breakneck speed. But we got to the section where Jesus sent out his disciples, and he said, hey, if the town rejects you, shake the dust off your, your feet and, and move on. And my seven-year-old Luke was like, what in the world does that mean? I can see him thinking, man, I'm going to walk out of Annie's room, my sister, and I'm just going to shake my dust off my feet and, and, and leave my sister's room. So we got to talk about that. And we're like, well, that, that's a great question, Luke. That he, they were, the disciples were saying, look, the, the dust that you walk on is not even worthy to cling to our feet. It was a sign of, of judgment against that town or that city. But that inquisitiveness, that, that questioning that, that comes from a seven-year-old's mind, we should have that because that's how we grow. That's how we learn more. That's how we understand and it bolsters our faith and encourages our faith. Think about being the disciples, listening to Jesus interact with all these people. As the question is posed, I can imagine them sitting back going, what would you say? I, what, what do you, what do you, how would you respond to that? And then when they hear how Jesus responds, you think their faith wasn't bolstered by that, encouraged by that, strengthened by that? Absolutely it was. So we can bring our questions. We can bring our concerns if you're a follower of Jesus, keep asking questions. Again, not to disprove, but to grow in your understanding of who Jesus is. Beware of prideful rejection. Chapter 13. There's a lot there. We're not going to do it justice. Let me just tell you that. But we're going to get the big picture. Not that we've done anything else justice so far. So why would that be different? Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Jesus and his disciples, again, I told you there's this cyclical pattern. They're on the Temple Mount, leaving the Temple Mount, on the Temple Mount, leaving the Temple Mount. So now they're going back out of the Temple Mount, right? And they're going back in the evening. And as they're leaving, one of the disciples is like, hey, look at these buildings. Isn't that cool? 
Did you guys see the new awnings that are outside of our, our buildings, the, the entryways? I was talking to people last night about that. We were all like, what, what is that? It's like an outer space, like it's a spaceship thing. It bothers my OCD because if you go stand under it, it's not open flat. It's open at an angle like this. And the, the pieces look like they would come together perfectly. And so if you, you just want to just do the satisfying, like, can I just shut that right now? Can I just do this? And then everything is going to mesh perfectly and it's going to scratch the itch that I have. Whatever. But the disciples are like, look at these buildings. Aren't they awesome? And Jesus is like, well, let's talk about those. Verse 2. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay. We read that and we're like, okay, yeah, whatever. And we move on. That for the disciples would have been like, huh? Excuse me? What did you just say? Like Jesus saying that the temple was going to be destroyed. By the way, if you did the DBR this morning, this is what they finally find testimony that agrees against Jesus, that Jesus said that the temple was going to be destroyed. Now, it's a conflation of this and another passage when Jesus said, tear this temple down in three days, I will rebuild it. Speaking of his body there. But, but Jesus is making this prediction, which comes true in AD 70, when Titus in the Roman army comes in, ransacks Jerusalem and destroys the temple. And so Jesus is pointing to this thing that's yet to be future, but the disciples, their curiosity is peaked at this point. They're going, wait a minute, that a temple's going to be destroyed? When is that happening? Because remember what they're thinking about Jesus at this point. They're not thinking cross and empty tomb. They're thinking king. And so for them, there's no, there's no category in which the temple is going to be destroyed at any point anymore. Because Jesus is here, the Messiah is here, he's setting up the kingdom, it's all going to go great, and now Jesus is going, wait a minute, this temple is going to be de destroyed? What? And so, of course, they ask him the question, so Jesus, that, that whole temple falling over thing, when, when, when is that going to happen? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. And then he goes through, and this is where we just don't have the time to dive into this, but the signs at the end of the age, he starts to tell them, look for these things that are going to happen here. And he begins to, to talk about the, the wars and the rumors of wars and the earthquakes and nation against nation, and there's going to be famine, and there's going to be, and he says, but these are but the, the birth pains, and, and they should cause you, he says, to be on guard. And you're going to be turned over. And you're going to be persecuted, he goes on to say. You're going to be beaten. You're going to stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And then verse 10. Here's what your real concern should be. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Jesus is, is teaching. He's introducing a, a, a thread here going, be more concerned about this than you are about when the temple is going to fall down. The gospel has got to be preached. You remember when I sent you guys out to proclaim repentance and faith for the kingdom of God is at hand? Hey, that, that message is going to have to go out further than just it already has. That's what our focus needs to be here. And that's what you're going to be doing as you're turned over here. When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you're to say. The, the Spirit will tell you what to say. You know, brother is going to deliver brother. Parents are going to turn over parents. Children are going to turn over parents. All for the, the end of my name's sake. You're going to be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, Jesus is, is furthering this, this idea of what's coming. And again, the disciples are expecting the Messianic kingdom. And Jesus is talking about suffering and tribulation and being turned over. They're going, what are you talking about? He's reorienting their perspective, their perspective. And then he says this in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This would have recalled for them all the way back to the time of Daniel and then the Maccabean revolt because Daniel prophesied about the abomination of desolation that then took place in, in partial fulfillment at the Maccabean revolt with Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificing a pig on the altar in Jerusalem before he destroyed the temple there. That's a partial fulfillment. They would have been thinking about that and they're thinking, wait a minute, this is going to all happen again? Jesus, what are you talking about here? And there's debate, did this happen in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple, or is this yet future? And I think there's a, a both and there, but certainly it's pointing to the future because Jesus goes on then to talk about the end times after that. He says in verse 20, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Those are the elect chosen out of the midst of the tribulation. 
So he says, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. Again, think about being one of the disciples right now, trying to wrap your mind around this. Expecting a messianic kingdom and hearing about this. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, Daniel 7, with great power and glory, and he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And then he returns to the fig tree. Remember the fig tree all the way back at the beginning of our time? From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. In other words, he's saying you can see the time, you can read the time. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near, truly, at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation, meaning the generation that's alive during this time, not the generation of the disciples that he's talking to, but the disciples that are, the, that are alive, the followers that are alive during the tribulation and everything, truly, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay, you're the disciples going, what? Trying to figure all this out, trying to wrap your mind around this. When's the temple going to fall over? Remember, that was the, the initial question. When is the temple going to be destroyed again, Jesus? When is that happening? And then he just said about all of this stuff and a tribulation and famine and earthquakes and wars and, 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 and you're going to be delivered over and there's going to be this, the son of man is going to be coming on clouds. Again, what do you think their question is? When? When? Jesus anticipates that and, and drives our point home for our third point here in the final section here. He says this, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know. Do you see that's the third time now that he's repeated the idea that we don't know. You do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, unless he comes suddenly and finds you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Okay, so Jesus is saying, you want to know when all these things are going to take place. Look, Nobody knows. And he's saying, look, even, the, even I in my incarnate form here, as part of the, the Philippians 2 veiling of my full glory, even I don't know what the Father's plan is for my return. In fact, if we go back to Psalm 110, verse 1, which Jesus alluded to earlier in his discussion with the Pharisees, it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's where Jesus is right now, waiting for the day that the Father says, now's the time. And we don't know when that's going to be. And that's the whole point. And I think Jesus is, is scratching the, the, the eschatological itch that is, has followed the church from that time on. Where all of us want to know. And, and that's why we argue about things. And in the ivory towers and seminary classrooms, people call each other bad names like amillennial and things like that. And, and postmillennial and premillennial. And you believe in a rapture. And I can't believe you. And this, that, and the other thing. And, and we waste so much time heated in, in debating about all that stuff. Instead of doing what Jesus wants us to do. Notice what he said there. I tried to emphasize it in verse 34. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge. Each with his work. Remember when he was talking back in verse 10? He said, the gospel has to be preached to all the nations. Look, let's quit freaking out about when Jesus is coming back. Let's be about the work that he has for us to do and watch for the signs and trust when he comes back, we'll be good because we're doing the work that he wants us to do. Our final point tonight is this. We need to beware of not being ready for his return. We need to beware of not being ready for his return. If, if you were with us this weekend in, in main service, which I hope you were, you need to be preaching through Acts. PM in his sermon today, by the way, had like 11 points. You didn't realize it because he had six sub points in point number one, three sub points in point number two, and two points. So there's 11 points in that sermon. But one of the points, one of the sub points in the second point was doors close on layers. Did you hear that this morning? Man, I heard that and I, was, I immediately thought of this passage. We have to be ready. You have to be ready. 
And if you're thinking to yourself, man, the, the Christianity thing is, is fine and, and I'll get around to it eventually, but right now it just costs me too much if I'm going to be all in. Look, there's no guarantee for you, and it's been a while since I've preached this message to you, but it needs to come back around. And again, I'm not going to apologize just like I didn't apologize for telling you, you got to have fruit in your life. Look, you got to get right with Jesus, and you got to do that tonight if you're not. Because it, we were, recently went and, and, and buried my, my wife's grandma, okay? And I was doing the funeral, and we were at the graveyard, and we're walking around, and my kids, who are six and seven years old, they walk up and they look at a tombstone that just says, Baby Johnson, with no dates on it. It has one year. Why is there only one year? Because that child died before it lived. And you walk around any cemetery, and, 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 and that sounds like it, it would be morose, but there's learning to to take place when we encounter death. That's why Ecclesiastes talks about death so much. Go walk through a graveyard. Go find one nearby and walk through. Go to the one in Lake Forest and walk through and count the number of headstones of people that died before you have, before they reach the age that you currently are. You won't do it. Why? Because you don't want to think about that. You don't want to think about the fact that your tire could blow on the way home, your car could flip over, and you could die in a fiery accident. You don't want to think about the fact that there might be a tumor inside you right now killing you. And you don't even know about it. You don't want to think about the fact that some lunatic could bust into these doors with a gun and mow us all down. You don't want to think about the reality of the end of your life and why you need to deal with Jesus now, not later. Now. And listen, y'all, if you are in Christ, are you living ready for his return at any time? Are you going to, as John put it, shrink in shame because when he comes back, he's going to be finding you doing something, saying something, thinking something, watching something that you shouldn't be. All of us need to live in the reality more so than we do that Jesus is coming back and we don't know when that's going to be. This is not a social club, what we do here. This is not an outlet for you to find friends, what we're doing here tonight. This is not a place for you to find Mr. or Mrs. Wright, what we do here at the bridge. We are here to grow in our knowledge and understanding and love of Jesus. And if that's not why you're here, then you're missing the point. Are you ready right now for him to come back? If you're not, tonight Get there. Because you're going to walk out these doors and you're not guaranteed a safe trip home. Jesus was also trying to teach his disciples in all of this. It's not about glory here. It's about being busy with the work that he's got for us here. What's your work? Again, verse 34, each with his work. What's the work, Christian, that God has given to you? To be doing, to be about, to be after. What is that work that he's got for you? Are you faithful with it? Next week, we're going to bring everything to the, the conclusion. Man, and just like Top Gun, when you watch that movie, because you're going to, because you're, you're going to respect pastoral authority here, you're going to watch the movie. And it's better than number one. I, wouldn't, I won't let my kids watch number one. I've let Joshua and Annie watch Top Gun number two. Um, because there's not, yeah, it's, it's better. But just like in Top Gun, look, you're going to be watching and the conflict's going to come and you're going to be on the edge of your seat and look, things get better before they get, things get worse before they get better. Like there's a moment that you're going to be like, what, wait, what? And when you have that reaction watching that movie, bring that, that reaction with you next week when we start to think about the cross. Because it's common for us. Oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross. So next week, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the, the, the climax of the glory of God in the life of Jesus, in the, the, the pinnacle of what it looks like for Jesus to be the suffering servant as he calls us to follow that example. 
But here we need to make sure that we are following him with fruitful lives, that we're looking to grow in our knowledge of him with a humility, and that we're ready for him to come back at any time. Let's pray. God, we thank you for all of the, the goodness, the kindness, the grace in our lives that is ours through Christ. We're thankful that he is a savior who gave his life for us that we might have life ourselves. And I pray for anyone in this room that is not right with you, that tonight would be the night. I pray that they would be afraid right now even, fearful of the fact that they are not right with you and that their heart is one hiccup away. They are one aneurysm away from their life being over forever with no second chance. Lord, instill a fear that drives them to you tonight. cause them to desire to do business with you above anything else, that that is the most important thing that needs to take place tonight, is to make sure that they have understood that you died on the cross for their sins so that they can be forgiven, that you rose from the dead so that they can live with you forever, so that they no longer have to fear that aneurysm. They no longer have to fear a blood clot. They no longer have to fear a car accident. They no longer have to fear a criminal because they know that they're right with you. And that being right with you means that eternity is secure. And eternity forever with you in a reality that is going to be better than anything else this world could ever offer us. A reality where there is no more sin forever and ever and ever. God, I pray that all of us would know that reality. Because all of us would know Jesus. By your grace, I pray that you would do those things tonight. Amen.